I invite you then to turn with me as we continue our series in the book of uh, Judges, and we're looking at Judges chapter 6, and we're picking up the story, the famous story of Gideon, and we're going to look at the first, uh, the first part of that story, and I'll read to verse uh, 32. As we come now to uh, the Bible, let's, uh, let's pray. Our Father God, uh, we ask that on this August Sunday morning, uh, that your word uh, would heal the brokenhearted, thrill uh, the young with the mission possibilities that are before them as they commit their lives to you, uh, comfort those in leadership with the strength of the God that they rely upon. And help us all, Lord, to behold you as our God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, let's come then to God's word, the book of Judges, chapter 6. And I'll read from verse 1 to verse 32. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. The people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the count of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I deliver you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. 
And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike down the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot, and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because He was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day. He did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the asher beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. For those of us who grew up in church, the story of Gideon is familiar. We've heard it before. We've probably been to a Sunday school lesson when our Sunday school teacher told the story of Gideon, one of the great heroes of the Bible. And yet when we come to actually read the text, he strikes us not so much as a paragon of faith, but as a man of doubt. He doubts over and over and over again. And in that very doubt that he has, he is extremely helpful for us today. There could be, I think, no more relevant passage of the Bible than this one in front of us. There may be here some worthy souls who have never doubted, or at least say they have never doubted. But for most of us at some point in our life, growing up in the Christian church or new to Christian things, there will come a season of doubt, a moment of doubt, a time of doubt, and this story is then of great relevance. 
It presents to us a God who is simply, irresistibly believable. A God who is so faithful that at the end of the story we will ask ourselves, how is it possible that I could ever doubt such a God? Doubts come in all shapes and sizes. If you're not yet a Christian here this morning, you may simply be saying to yourself, how can I believe in a God of the Bible when I am a 21st century person with all the discoveries of modern science? For many, doubt comes in the shape of suffering. They wonder how it is that they can get through a personal suffering or the suffering they read about, perhaps in the story of the news about Hawaii or some hurricane. Voltaire brilliantly expressed the suffering challenge to the Christian faith in his famous book Candide when reflecting on the earthquake of Lisbon in 1755. He exploded the idea that was the positive mantra of the day that we live in the best of all possible worlds. How? Voltaire asked, could it be that we live in the best of all possible worlds? In the beginning of that famous book, he had a poem where he described the contrast of Lisbon versus Paris or London, saying, were the babes in the arms of the mothers of Lisbon somehow less righteous than those in Paris who did not die? If we say that it is only the righteous who survive the traumas of our world, how then do we answer the question of the righteous who suffer? Voltaire asked. But of course, he wasn't the first person to make that point. Long before that, Jesus himself, in the parable of the Tower of Siloam, told the story that showed that those who were crushed under the Tower of Siloam were no more righteous than anyone else. The point of the suffering of this world is to draw us back to the God who is good, exposes the brokenness of this world and our need, all of us. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, the Bible says. The need for all of us to find peace and reconciliation with our God. For others, it's not suffering, it's something more personal. There are those who grew up with parents who loved them and left the mark on them of deep security and trust in life. And there are others who grew up with parents who left them with a permanent difficulty to risk faith in anyone or anything. Here we come then to Gideon. And as we look at the story of Gideon, we see someone who doubts and yet at the end finds faith. Who is tempted in the phrase of our day to deconstruct his faith, but encounters God. So we have here how not to overcome our doubts. And how God gives faith nonetheless. The first way not to overcome our doubts is through 
defeatist theology or defeatist thinking. Look down with me in your Bibles to verse 11. God sends his angel to Gideon and Gideon is hiding the wheat in the wine press. That is, the wine press would have been slightly underground or below the surface and so those who he was fitting threatened by, the Midianite enemies would not have seen him threshing the wheat and if they had seen him doing some kind of activity, they would assume that he wasn't making bread, a staple diet. He was merely doing something with, with, with grapes and wine and so he was hiding. This is not a man that you think is going to be a great warrior and there is Gideon hiding. And the angel of the Lord says to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The one who's hiding. But a mighty man of valor he will become. And Gideon comes up with his first excuse. A defeatist thinking or defeatist theology. Verse 13. And Gideon said to him, please my Lord or but sir, here's his first excuse. Oh no Lord, please God, not that. Look at his thinking. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Defeatist thinking. And actually, defeatist theology. God has abandoned us. He's not with us anymore. How, angel of the Lord, could you possibly be telling me to be a mighty man of valor? God has abandoned us. Be a bit like your favorite sports team. And maybe your favorite sports team is the Cubs or White Sox, perhaps. And you're watching them play and you know that the opposite team has a famous and particularly effective pitcher. And before the game even begins, afterwards when they've lost, you hear that in the, in the dugout, they were saying to one another, it's no good. That pitch is too, too amazing. There's no way we're going to win. They're already defeated before they even play. So often that can be like that in church life. The most famous instance of this in church history is the great missionary William Carey who stood up in a meeting and said that he was going to take the gospel around the world. And some older Christian leader said to him, young man, sit down. When God wants to convert those people of other nations, he will do it without using you or me. Defeatist theology. Defeatist thinking. God is not with us. He's abandoned us. We cannot see the gospel make progress in this day anymore. No, it's all too late. It's all over. Be careful what you think about. Oh, yes, be careful what you watch on Netflix. But don't just, that doesn't just mean avoiding explicit movies. Be careful of the shape of your mind. 
defeatist theology. You see it all the time. An emphasis on the cross of Jesus in the sense of Jesus' sufferings and sacrifice and death without a balancing emphasis on his resurrection power and the gospel empowered by his spirit that he has sent upon the church. A constant lament and sadness in our singing, instead of a claim of victory that we serve the risen and ascended Lord Jesus. God has abandoned us. It's too late. Defeatist thinking, defeatist theology. That's how not to overcome doubt. But uh, Gideon has another excuse. He uses the same phrase again, verse 15, but he introduces another way he's trying to get out of what he's being asked to do. Uh, And Gideon said to him, verse 15, Please, Lord, but sir, here's another excuse. How can I save Israel? This isn't defeatist theology. This is his sense of personal inadequacy. Another way not to defeat doubt. Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Well, I suppose that might have been true, but we find out later that actually uh, Gideon and his family have a goat, two bulls, which means they had a much larger herd of cows, of course, Uh, ten servants, at least, uh, which they used to, to tear down the, the altar later, it means they probably had more servants. Enough resources to thresh wheat, even in a time of famine and occupation, which means they, they were doing pretty well. And in fact, when he's called mighty man of valor, the, the, the phrase might mean that Gideon and his family come from a well-known uh, military uh, elite group in the area. It's unlikely that really he was such a person of personal inadequacy. But even if he was, what on earth did that have to do with anything? God was sending him. I don't even remember the Cambridge physicist Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking, a brilliant man, uh, known for his exploration of the mysteries of the universe, particularly related to black holes. But he was also renowned, of course, because he did all this while uh, 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 paralyzed uh, from the neck down in a wheelchair. Uh, Stephen Hawking one time took one of those uh, 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 flights up into the, uh, the, the last bit of the atmosphere of, of our earth so that he could experience weightlessness. And up there, he he floated out of his wheelchair and experienced, again, weightlessness. It would be a bit like this excuse of Gideon's. Stephen Hawking getting up there and about to experience weightlessness, saying to those who are going to unstrap him from his wheelchair, no, no, don't you understand? I'm paralyzed. I can't move. I can't get out of my chair. I'm in a wheelchair. But Stephen Hawking understood enough of science to know that when he was unstrapped, he would float above the wheelchair or out of the wheelchair, above and down, 
relative terms and once you experience your weightlessness. You may feel that you have great personal inadequacy for whatever reason. But if God is calling you, what does that personal inadequacy have to do with anything? He has a mission for you, Christian. Churches, you know, sometimes get stuck in a loop of emphasizing what's wrong with them. And every church has problems. Even college church. I'm heard, though I find it hard to believe. And churches emphasize all their difficulties and this went wrong and this went wrong and this. Without talking about all who God is. And that God delights to use the weak things of this world to shame the wise. Weak people like us. That's why in our vision statements at church we talk about the God-centered gospel. It's not about us. It's about who he is. Am I not sending you? Well, then we come to the most remarkable excuse of Gideon's of all. Uh, We've had the personal inadequacy. We've had the defeatist thinking or the defeatist theology. But now we have what you might call spiritual vacillating or wavering. Look down to verses 16 uh, to 90. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. But Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And the angel said, I will stay until you return. How gracious is God. Here's another excuse. And yet God is so kind. So simply, irresistibly believable. Gideon is vacillating, wavering. Well, okay, if you really are with me, hold on, I, I want some other proof. And he goes to find a present or a gift. So Gideon, verse 19, went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah flour. And then he put meat in the basket and the broth he put in a pod. And he brought them to him under the terrament and presented them to him. He, he's wavering, vacillating. It's really the most remarkable moment of this whole story in some ways, I think. This story is encased with Exodus symbolism. The Midianites have been coming to Israel and destroying it. And they're described as like a plague of locusts, which a Middle Eastern witness of what that would be like once said that the locusts 
blocked out the sun. Terrible destruction. Removing every kind of food. But not only terrible destruction, what the author of the story is saying is that they are now experiencing the plagues that Egypt experienced. Remember the plague of locusts from the book of Exodus? And then the angel of the Lord says, verse 16, but I will be with you. And when he says that, he is saying exactly the same phrase that God said to Moses at the burning bush when he called him to rescue his people from Egypt. Exactly the same words. Yahweh will be with you. I will be with you. And Gideon is shocked into action. And yet he still vacillates. Oh, hold on, let me go and get a present for you to check. I'm trying to think what it would be like. It would be a bit like this. Say you go to Washington, D.C., and you're there with a group of friends or something like that, and you're all moaning to each other about the political corruption of D.C. It's, it's an easy thing to do, isn't it? And as you're talking about how you might solve all the problems or whether they're even possibly solvable, someone taps you on the shoulder and says to you, without you turning around, you need to solve the problem. It's your job. And when you turn around in astonishment to look at this person, he's a rather tall, thin man with sandy hair and a freckled expression, wearing an 18th century white powdered wig. And he says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And as Jefferson approaches you, You say, as the British might say, oh, hold on, let me just go and get you a cup of tea and we'll talk about it. I will be with you, quoting from what God said to Moses. And he still wavers. If you have doubts, here's what not to do. Don't bury them. When I was doing my PhD at Cambridge, every now and then I would have a doubt about something that I was studying. What I did is I I wrote it down and I tried to solve it right there and then. And if I couldn't solve it, I returned to it in a week or so and then I found I could usually solve it. And then if I still couldn't solve the problem, I would talk to an older Christian friend about it. And, and And what I found was that in the course of thought and time, I I had managed to solve about 95, 96, 97% of the questions I had. And I thought to myself, having done that, that's a pretty good percentage. I'm not 97% sure that I'm even alive. But the one thing you mustn't do is vacillate, bury the doubts. Because if you do, what will happen is one day you'll wake up, and I've spoken to people like this, And you find you don't believe. And if someone asked you why, 
you're not even sure. Deal with it right at the time. Our God is simply, irresistibly believable. Perhaps you are not yet a Christian. And you're hearing for the first time from God, I will be with you. Don't delay. It may be that God is gracious. He, he was gracious to Gideon's here. And he said, uh, I'll still be here when you return. And maybe he will be for a while. But at one point or another, the clock will be over. The time will be gone. Don't vacillate. If you're a Christian leader, don't use your business in service, building altars and getting things to sacrifice and serving and volunteering as an excuse to avoid real integrative commitment to God. There was an Australian evangelist once who was talking to a group of Christian ministers and he said to them at one point, just because you're a minister or a pastor, just because you're a minister doesn't let you off from being a Christian. Just because you're a Christian leader, a Sunday school leader, an officer in the church, a pastor, a minister, doesn't let you off from real, risky, integrity, and faith. Well, then we come to the last of these ways not to solve your doubts and God's gracious ways of solving them nonetheless with uh, Gideon's final excuse, which I've called inactive trembling, spiritual vacillating, personal inadequacy, defeatist theology, now inactive trembling. Look down at, from verse 19 and on, he he, he, he puts the, the angel, he, he, he creates this, this offering, and the angel of God uh, does all, the, the, tells him what to do. And then uh, you find that the angel vanishes somehow m- mysteriously in the offering. And then Gideon perceived that he had seen the angel of the Lord. That is, what Gideon is realizing is that actually he's having what theologians call a theophany. He is seeing the very person of God himself. And being well-schooled enough in biblical theology, he understands that having seen God, then he is at risk of death to see God himself in all his holiness and glory. And the Lord declares peace to him. But still, Gideon doesn't actually do anything. Sometimes that can happen to people when they're under conviction. They sense that God has seen their sin. And they're frightened about it. But they still don't change course. 
The Apostle Paul says, knowing what it is to fear the Lord, we persuade people. Real fear of God leads to action. Jesus told a parable about the reverse of that, where he, he, the parable of the talents, where the person who'd just been given one talent was so frightened, we're told, Jesus, as he, as he tells the story. He was so frightened that he, he buries the talent. He doesn't do anything. There's a kind of fear that is inactive. And it isn't really, therefore, fear of God. It's fear of the consequences. Don't fear your doubts. Fear your God. Gideon encounters God simply, irresistibly. Believable. And then the real issue is exposed, of course, isn't it? Having been through all these different excuses, God tells him to take your father's ball and the second ball and the altar of Baal that your father has. Stop there. Do you know what that means? They have an idol in their backyard. Their father, some commentators think, was a kind of priest of Baal on the side. He tears it down. Finally, he gets the courage to do something, though he does it at night, but at least he does it. Let's be, let's be fair. You see, the opposite of faith is not Doubts. The opposite of faith is idolatry. We all believe in something or someone. We believe in science with all its glorious humanness and ego driven, grant funded research. Believe in yourself with all your fickle, fallible humanity. Or believe in God. Therefore, in view of God's mercy... Offer up your bodies as living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. If you're still doubting, it could well be there's an idol in your backyard. Perhaps a secret sin. Perhaps just believing in yourself. Perhaps a fake kind of religion. Because the real God of the Bible is simply irresistibly believable.
There was another man who doubted, you know. Even after Jesus had risen again, he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and his side and put my hands there, I will never believe. It's not recorded whether he actually ever did touch them. But when Thomas encountered Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God, and worshipped. He may say, well, I... I, I, I haven't had what Thomas had. I, I haven't seen the risen Lord Jesus physically of my own eyes. And I haven't even had what, what, what Gideon had. I haven't seen the angel of the Lord. Listen, my friend. Here we are. The altar is built. The body of Christ is here. The spirit is is with us. All we need to do is stop doubting and believe. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, thank you for the example of Gideon and how encouraging it is. Even someone like Gideon with all his excuses. Nonetheless, Lord, your graciousness, your kindness, you win him to faith. We pray this morning that would be true of every single one of us. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.